everyone here, at some point in your life, some point in your life, especially your life here at Grace Church, come sit up in the first two rows on Sunday morning. I'm telling you. Hey, listen, even if you sit in the front two rows during the song service and then go to the back, I don't care what you do. I mean, I do, but you know what I'm saying? I'll tell you what. I'm a changed person every Sunday because I get to hear that volume of con- and content from you as you sing. Seriously, it's different up here. <laughs> um, so I only say that to encourage you, not discourage you. Uh, and all these seats are free. Nick and Rosie, what's your permanent seat license up here? What's your PL- PSL up here? You paid last week, you're good? All right. Free. I wouldn't. <laughs> I'd stick. Anyways, anyway, right, right, right. In your Sunday folder, you may have seen a little card to hand out to a friend to invite them to the Easter service, which is typically uh, evangelistic in its nature. Uh, so uh, if you're witnessing to a friend, and you, uh, which I'm sure that you're doing long before you bring them to church, but if you would love to invite them that day. We'll certainly do our best to allow them to hear the gospel. Romans chapter 10. Let's take our Bibles and journey back to Paul's epistle to the Romans here, chapter 10. For those of you who are guests, we typically like to go through one book at a time here at Grace Church of Mentor. In the evening service, we're going through the book of Acts this year. In the morning, we're taking a second year to go through and wrap up the book of Romans. Um, this year. Uh, Today, what I would like to do is focus upon verses 5 to 13. Um, I think there's a a natural break between 5 to 13 and 14 to the end of the chapter, which we'll handle the next time that we're together. So maybe you came this morning and you forgot your Bible in the car and you don't have a Bible on your device. Just slip up your hand. Our ushers are ready to give you one. Keep your hand up high and they'll find you and give you a Bible to fall along with. Another here in the middle. Last, keep your hands up high over here to the back, and we'd like for you to follow along. Romans chapter 10, and let's look here at verse number 5. Verse number 5. Romans chapter 10 and verse number 5. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on the law, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Remember, that's the second time he quotes that from Isaiah. He did so again in 9. Chapter 9 and verse 33, but verse 12 says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
So let's discuss a little bit here as we continue this morning um, potential response of religion to the offer of grace, the offer of saving grace. Religion has a response. And, and before I continue this morning, I would like to remind you that religion's response is a sincere response. It's often a response that's rooted deep in the heart of someone who's been reared religiously. When they respond to the offer of free grace and salvation that's free in Jesus Christ alone, they're responding as genuinely as they possibly can from a religious heart. So let's keep that in mind when we discuss here how Paul addresses the response of a religious heart to free saving grace, the offer of free saving grace. He's not doing so in a debate format. He's not really doing so in a dialogue format. He's certainly not doing it in a vitriolic way. He has no attitude behind what he's saying. He's just stating the scriptures and how the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, simply and clearly outlines how a religious soul, no matter how deeply they're rooted in their religiosity, can freely come to Christ and to know him through saving grace. So as we continue here, Paul speaks here on behalf of all mere religious people and their general rejection of grace, which they most, most would not know that they're rejecting. Some do. I think he'll point out here a little bit later in the text that some know that they're rejecting grace, but I think some don't know. And I know that you're aware of the context that Paul is speaking here in relationship to the Jewish religion because he himself was formerly a religious Jew, now a Messianic Jew, someone that had come to know Christ as a Savior. He's speaking from his own historic reference. But even though he's speaking from his own historic reference, from what we know from the immediate and general context, he's speaking about the response of religion in general. Religion in general believes that it's God plus works or Jesus plus works to find our way to salvation or to eternal benefit, however it's described in their religion. The Bible rejects finding eternal favor through human work plus God and Jesus. It's, it's found in Jesus Christ alone. Apart from human effort or human action, it's a gift. It's a free gift of God's grace. And in the context of Rome, the Jewish religion would have been probably the most prevalent religion at that time outside of the other you know, Hellenic influences there of polytheism and so forth. But again, Jewish religion at this time would have been, in Paul's context here, demonstrative of all religion. I think it's important for us also to recall at this time that Paul is not addressing a corrective for the people who he writes in the Church of Rome. They were a faithful congregation. Remember with me Paul's agony in the beginning of chapter 9 and how he begins chapter 10 in verse 1 by telling us about his heart and his uh, agony of soul over those who are of his friends and family who had heard the gospel of Jesus Christ but continued to reject it and choose religion over Christ. It's quite a dilemma for us all, isn't it? 
I mean, once you've experienced the reviving, free, life-changing, burden-lifting grace of God in Jesus Christ alone, we do find it incredibly difficult to comprehend why someone close to us never seems quite ready to have their life transformed by something or someone that's free. It's mind-boggling to us, isn't it? As a matter of fact, you've had conversations with me and among yourselves on people that you've witnessed to, and, and uh, they would be people that would actually describe to you this burden of religious regimen that they're tired of. They're, it's exhausting to them. They never feel quite like they match up. They're always underneath this cloud of somewhat of a, a quasi-guilt trip. They never feel like they're good enough, but yet they're still striving. They're still trying. It's, mm. And you just say, no, it's free. Jesus did all the work on the cross. If you could work your heaven, if you want you to heaven, why did Jesus have to die anyway? Don't you see it's free? It's not by works of righteousness that you've done. For by grace are you saved. Through faith alone, in Jesus alone, it's free. Just turn from your sin and trusting yourself and, and throw yourself in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and invite him into your life. Turn from your sin. Rest in him and him alone. And they look at you with this blank stare like, they still decide to live under the regimen of religion and the burden of religion for whatever the reason. And your heart is just in agony, right? Boy, you just wish they could know that spiritual freedom and that joy that you have. And we're going to find out how to help them here as Paul responds uh, to that religious mindset. I remember when I was growing up as a boy, my brother and I were playing baseball, we're throwing a baseball, and the ball got away from us, rolled into the garage, and it rolled underneath um, what do you call those um, big wooden things that hold things? Pallets. It rolled underneath a pallet, and on top of that pallet and several pallets were some very heavy things. And I can remember um, as a little boy wanting that baseball, and I got underneath there, my arm wasn't quite long enough to reach that ball. And so, you know, I got my brother over there, and we're trying to raise this heavy pallet, right, to try to get the ball and and we couldn't do it and my dad happened upon our extreme efforts and he chuckled and he went over uh, to his workbench and he grabbed this long three to four foot steel bar right and just with one hand he put that bar underneath that pallet right just you know jammed it in there pushed down lifted it up and we thought he was Hercules right <laughs> He said, get your ball. We got our ball, pound, you know, boom, put it down, went back over. And he said, boys, this is the law of physics. This is called a lever, <laughs> right? I'm not Hercules. You know, this is a lever. And if you ever want to lift something heavy, just learn how to use a lever, right? And when I was going through this, I was trying to come up with some type of illustration to illustrate to religious people um, how God lifts, easily lifts, the, the burden of religious uh, guilt trip, the burden of religious regimen, right? and how he easily, by his grace, transforms you in Jesus Christ alone, apart from yourself, apart from your priest, apart from your pastor, apart from your church, apart from your family. He does it all by himself. 
And the lever to me was like grace, right? It was free, it was easy, it was lifting a burden, and it got you to actually where you wanted to be, which is like Jesus Christ and having eternal favor, right? But yet we still have a tendency to, to live under that burden. And, but grace is a free offer of unmerited favor of God in Jesus Christ, isn't it? Faith is the free gift of God, not of works. Just this week, I was going through Twitter, and I read an appropriate tweet from a pastor who said, religious good works shipwrecks grace. Religious good works shipwrecks grace. In other words, there is no true understanding of grace in the context of religiosity. It doesn't exist. Last week we discovered together the words and phrases that distinguish the righteousness according to the law as compared to the righteousness that comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And I would ask you to go back and kind of work through those phrases, through the recordings that we have online. But today our desire is to continue to explore how religion responds to grace so that we may wisely embrace what we have been given in Christ, but also wisely govern our hearts as we continue to live through the grief that we have in our own hearts and the sadness that our friends and family are yet to be saved as they're encumbered by religion. We covered together verses 1 to 4, actually the end of chapter 9 and verses 1 to 4 last week. I'd just like to highlight a couple things here in verses 1 to 4 as we segue again into 5 to 13 this morning. Remember what Paul says here in verse number 1. He says of chapter 10, my, Brethren, my heart's what? My heart's desire. He has a tremendous compassion for those he's grieving over who have yet to understand the simplicity of free saving grace. But what does he go on to say? My heart's desire and my prayer. You want to know how to respond to religion? Continue to have a heart of compassion for those who are under its burden, but don't ever stop praying for them either. And this is a clear statement that underpins the mystery of chapter 9 and chapter 10. And we're going to leave it a mystery. We know from chapter 9, the Lord will show mercy on who he shows mercy, and he'll show compassion on who he shows compassion. We know that the sovereign aspect to the saving grace of Christ, but yet in chapter 10 and verse 1, he still asks us to pray for those under the bondage of religion. And we should be, right? Amen. And I hope you are. There's something about this continuing desire, this continuing compassion we have for the lost that is accentuated and is increased in the context and the environment of prayer. So continue to beseech and to beg and to supplicate for lost souls. And what else do we know about religious people in verse 2? They have a zeal for God. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with what? Knowledge. Underline the word knowledge here. This is actually the Greek word epinosis. It's, it's a, there's two words for knowledge in the New Testament. Well, more than two, but there, there's basic knowledge, gnosis, and epinosis. This is epinosis. They have a zeal for God, but yet they've not fully yet understood Christ. That's what he's saying here. Because understanding Christ completely only comes through receiving the free grace of God that's offered to us in Jesus Christ. And, and these are zealous people, aren't they? 
These are sincerely zealous people. They're not all stiff-necked, stubborn people. Some are, but many are not. Think about Paul in his own history here. These folks were, did the best that they could. He himself, from his own testimony from Philippians 3, did everything he could to follow the religious regimen of the Mosaic system. There was no one that tried harder with sincerity than the Apostle Paul. They were Torah keepers. They loved the law of Moses. Paul would have had the whole first five books of the Old Testament memorized word for word. Folks, try memorizing one chapter of Leviticus. <laughs> Let alone the whole Pentateuch. Could you imagine that? These were sincere people. In addition to that, they had developed their own understanding of Jewish tradition. It was recorded in a volume called the Talmud. And they studied, over time, they almost gave the same value of the Torah to the Talmud. And, and, and the words of God and then the words of men, the traditions applied from the Torah, the Talmud, they... They were sincerely seeking to, to follow these teachings. As a matter of fact, they set up um, the, the whole rabbi tradition in Jewish history did not exist until the intertestamental time. And it was set up after the Jewish people had an opportunity to be eyewitnesses of what the Greeks were doing to perpetuate the teaching of the philosophers. The philosophers had their followers. They were called the Mathetes, the disciples. And they really got down the teaching of the philosophers quite well. And the Jews actually looked at them and said, they're a whole lot more organized than we are. We have the Torah, we have the Talmud, so let's gather ourselves together underneath teachers of both and let's call their followers the Talmud. And in time, the leaders of the Talmud became known as the rabbis. These were, these were sincere people really longing to find eternal favor through the religious keeping of both the Torah and the Talmud. And to be honest, this is what really causes our hearts to grieve even more, right, when we're trying to share the, the free grace of Christ to religious people. Because you can see, it's not just that they're blind to free saving grace, but they're they, they themselves feel indebted to their religious tradition. Sincerely indebted to it. And verse 3 tells us, as we looked at last week, their sincerity led them to believe that they could actually establish their own righteousness as opposed to God's. And that they would not submit to Christ because they felt indebted to their own righteousness. Their own way to Righteousness. That's how sincere they were. So I just say, as we, as we respond to religious, or to, to mere religious people, I would just ask us to take a deep breath as we're praying for them, developing a compassion for them, also to develop a patience with them. Because this is all they've known. This is all they've known. And they, many of them are truly, uh, truly depending on 
their service to their religion to gain eternal favor. So this is no, this is no passing matter. This is a big deal to them, as it was to you, for many of you who came out of religious backgrounds as well. It took time, didn't it? Well, we learned as we finished last week that Christ is the end of the law to everyone who believes. To all here today who know Christ, you say to this, yes, yes, he is the end of the law. What freedom to be relieved from the rules and regulations of religion and to have my sin burden lifted exclusively by Jesus Christ. Certainly, where one knows Christ by grace, there is no more need for the rules and regulations of religion. It's gone. Christ is the end of that. He's the finish line. Remember last week? He's the finish line. But let's not forget, folks. In verse 1 again, we need to pray. And let's not forget in verse 4, this offer of this free grace is to everyone who believes. Again, the mystery here. These two spiritual activities and virtues are always intermixed with the sovereignty of grace. They always are. Continue to pray. Continue to pray. There are more to be saved. We certainly want our friends and family to know the same relief in Christ that we've experienced. Let's continue on here in verses 5 to 13 to discover how sincere unbelief is and the way it thinks if we're going to know how to properly pray and continue to develop a compassion for them. And we need to know God's answer for sincere unbelief. So when doors open to share salvation in Christ alone, we know how to appropriately do so. And always remember, there's nothing to debate, as we stated earlier, and there's nothing to be sarcastic or caustic over either. This is just what we do. So while you're building relationships with religious folks, again, respect the sincerity as much as you can. Think about this too. The people that you're witnessing to that are stuck in their religious regimen, they're all made in the image of God. They were designed to worship, weren't they? So they're actually adhering to the way in which they were created, only in a mere religious way. There's something to be respected about that. Right? This is going to sound really weird to you. I have a lot of friends who, and family who are stuck in mere religion. And when I find out the various degrees of their devotion to that religion, this is what I tell them. I tell them, thank you for your devotion. I respect that. What am I thinking when I say that? I'm not respecting their religion. I'm not agreeing with what they're doing. I'm remembering they're made in God's image. This is the way God created them. They're actually following through with the way God created them. The God created every man and woman to worship something. And if you're not worshiping in the context of formal religion, and you're irreligious, you're probably found worshiping your children or your grandchildren, right? Everyone knows how to do that. Everyone's writing tithe checks to their kids' sports programs and to their educations, and everyone's going to worship somehow. And if you're not going to worship in a religious context, you're going to worship your kids or your grandkids. And You know, follow your checkbook. That's where you find out what you're worshiping. God created you to worship. 
And so that's something to be respected and appreciated. And you would be surprised how many hearts soften when they actually find you paying homage to their devotion. Well, you give a lot of time to that. Well, you've given a lot of thought to this, haven't you? Well, you're really honoring your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents. You really love your family tree, don't you? Well, that's commendable. I appreciate that for sure. So, oh, wow, you do? Well, yeah, yeah, I do. But certainly we're not done there. We're not done there, are we? What we're then able to do is to let them know, particularly here in this context, and we're talking about religiosity from a Jewish perspective, you know, we're also able to talk about religiosity from any religious perspective. So if I'm talking to someone that believes that they're saved through infant baptism and through the means of grace of communion or they're, they're saved through just mere good works or they're saved through following any type of religious guideposts in their lives. I'll, I'll often ask them, I'll say, okay, well, a lot of these religious guideposts we can't find in the scripture, but let's talk about the ones that we can. Right. And many of my religious friends would never repudiate the Ten Commandments. And so I'll say, you know, your church holds to the Ten Commandments. Well, yes. So that's great. I think it's wonderful. It's definitely part of the Bible. And, and, I'll, and I'll, we'll just start talking about the Ten Commandments. And, and I'll say, well, which ones do you honor in your life? Well, I try to honor all of them. You know, I'm trying to be a good person. I say, it's great. Right? And then I'll say, hey, which one of those, if you could help me out, because I've not been really successful at this yet, and I don't say this in a coy way. I just say, which one of those Ten Commandments have you been able to keep perfectly in your life? And could you show me how to do that? Well, I'm not saying that I've kept them perfectly. I'm just saying they're just kind of like guideposts, you know. I'm just trying to live by them as much as I can. It's like, I, I have not been able to keep them perfectly either. And then I'll just say, hey, wait, what, what's the purpose for the Ten Commandments? Right, now we're getting closer. Right. Have you ever taken a, uh, gone, gone to a large state park and come upon the opening of a trail? And the opening of that trail, there's three different paths you can take. There's the half-mile path, right? The two-mile path, and the 26-mile, zillion-mile path, right? <laughs> you can always tell, right, by people entering the path, which path they're going to choose, Right? You got the millennial hiker fully backpacked with the walking shoes, and they've got this gear that they had to get from some magazine because they all look the same. <laughs> right? They got their water bottles and their protein and their hydration. They're ready to go. They're going on the 26 zillion mile path. Right? And then you've got the people that look the certain way that are the half mile track people. You know, we're just thankful they're out walking. Right? <laughs> Right? The older I get, the more I'm merging to that little simple half-mile loop. You know, that was nice, you know. <laughs> then you got the two-mile people. I think I'm still on that two-mile pack right now. And we've got our certain look. But when we get on those paths, we're always looking for the guideposts, right, that are stuck in the ground or maybe they, they, they post 
uh, on a pole and you're saying, hey, you're at the one quarter mile mark. You only got a quarter mile left to go. Take a deep breath, enjoy it while you got it, right? It's encouraging to watch those guideposts, right? They're not only directional, they're also helpful in letting you know how much time you've got left. And it's always great to finish and to enjoy the good, good scenery and good exercise and so forth. What Paul is about to say here is that, is, that, is that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, if you will, one aspect of the moral code of God, they're just guideposts to lead us to someone, not something. The guideposts are just there to let us know, right, that we're weak, right, and we can't necessarily make it on our own to let us know that we're imperfect and that we need someone else's perfection, not our own, and that's obviously the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's never forget that when we're talking to religious people, many of them are walking by the guideposts, and some of them are biblical. They just haven't realized yet their imperfection as they're seeking to follow those guideposts. And that's all Paul's trying to do. So we're talking about grace's response to, to religiosity here, so uh, let's continue to, to move on here this morning. So don't underestimate religious sincerity as you pray for your friends and family. So what's going on in the rest of the chapter 10 here? Well, Paul will skillfully use the Old Testament now to remind the Roman church how they can use the Old Testament to help souls stuck trusting a religious tradition that their religious tradition as a Jew or whoever was meant to point them to Christ alone for salvation. He begins in verses 5 and 6 to help him understand something. He says here, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Verse 7, who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. So what do we find out here in verses 5 to 13? And I'll give this one major heading as we find out grace's response um, or religion's response to grace or grace's response to religion. We find out that religious people have a central issue and that's often that they misinterpret their own scriptures. They misinterpret their own scriptures. So Paul's going to use the scriptures now to straighten out the religious mind to point them back to grace in Christ alone. Right, so let's talk about how they misinterpret their own scriptures. It's interesting here, he says, for Moses writes. This is an incredible declaration, isn't it? He's going to say to the Jewish person, the way to salvation can exclusively be found just in the Pentateuch. While he's going to use more than just the Pentateuch here, he starts by saying, for Moses Writes. It's a great reminder to us that we're able to use all of Scripture to point people to Christ, but the answer, just the law of Moses would be enough to point someone to Christ, wouldn't it? Amen. And that's what he's going to talk about here. It reminds me of what David said in Psalm 19, 14. For the law of the Lord, the Torah, the books of Moses, 
The law of the Lord is perfect, and they what? They convert the soul. They transform the nefesh. Okay? Moses writes, Faith cometh by hearing, we'll find out later, and hearing by what? The word of God. For Moses writes, and the summary of what Moses was written about salvation in Christ alone uh, begins here in these verses, in verses 5 to 7 here. So beginning in these verses, a summary of what Moses had explained in the Old Testament about the sufficiency of Christ and what the Jewish heart had just missed, or since they had heard it, they sought to reject it, is, is spelled out so plainly here. He says in verse 5, basically, if you're going to be saved by law, you will have to continue to live under the burden of that law. He quotes Leviticus 18.5. Now go on through the rest of Leviticus and you'll find out uh, that the immediate context of Leviticus 18 is the moral purity code of law. And my goodness, if you want to find about how detailed and how, how careful God is about moral purity, read Leviticus 18. God's very much interested in the detail of moral purity, the extreme detail of moral purity. And so basically he's saying, look, to the Jewish person in town in Rome, that the Jewish saved person in the church of Rome is grieved over not having seen come to Christ yet or not, as you continue to minister to them, pray for them, have an increase in compassion for them, be respectful and patient for them, but hey, remind them from time to time what their own scriptures say. And when you bring up Leviticus 18 to a devout Jew in a first century Roman context, they're immediately going to start to think moral purity. And when Paul says here, if you're going to, you know, say I keep that law, then you're going to have to find life through that law, the Jewish mind would have understood that I would have had to keep that moral purity code perfectly in order to have life eternally from adhering to that code. And the Jewish mind would have said, look, I know the detail of Leviticus 18. There's not one person, let alone me, that's lived perfectly according to the detail of Leviticus 18, so I must not have life. That's what Paul's saying here. If you say you're going to live by it and you're going to have life through it, the only way that you can live by something and have life by it is that if you live it perfectly. Again, the law is your guidepost. The law is your guidepost. Use the scriptures to unburden your heart and to demonstrate your compassion and your prayer for these souls by letting them reason through the scriptures themselves. Faith cometh by hearing. What does he go on to say here? Verse 6. Not just Leviticus 18, but now he's going to move over to the book of Deuteronomy. And he's going to focus on a few phrases here. And he quotes from Moses. He says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. And he's quoting again, continuing here in Deuteronomy. In your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith which we are preaching. What's he saying here? 
to the religious person. Religion's going to say, okay, I got this. I've got my system. I've got my way to heaven. I've got this. That's what I've been taught. This is what I'm doing. I've got this. I've got this. I've got this. That's what religion does. I've got this. I'm okay. I hope I'm okay. I've got this. And what Paul is saying here by quoting Moses in Deuteronomy, he is saying, when you truly understand saving faith, it's all of God and nothing of man. Man does not have this. Remember what I just said from Leviticus 18. No one's been perfect in that kind of detail. The law is your guidepost to show you your imperfection. So how can imperfection completely and comprehensively put together a plan that leads someone to eternal rest and peace with God? They can't do that. So what is he saying here by quoting Moses in Deuteronomy? He's saying this. What person in this auditorium could have, of their own volition, come up with the plan for God to become a man in Jesus Christ? Who's going to go up into heaven and cause God to come down? Anyone going to think about that? Any one of you that could initiate that? And after he's come down and he's lived and he's died as a perfect lawkeeper for your sin, and he's in the grave, which one of you is going to be able to say, I have the power, or even to even think it up, to scheme it up, to go over and say, Jesus, raised from the dead. Which one of you in the auditorium could have said, I could have come up with that on my own? And I could have enacted that. And there's no answer to that question. And basically what Paul's saying here to the religious person is, you try to say constantly, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this, I've got this. And actually, that's not good. <laughs> because you're imperfect. And the only way to have peace with God is to entrust yourself with someone right, who plans something out for you that you could never do for yourself. You could not have planned God's condescension, enfleshment, in the person of Jesus Christ. And you could have never schemed death for all of sin, burial, and you could have never schemed out resurrection from death to show power and conquer over all the effects of human sin. And you would have never, ever said salvation comes in one, the resurrected one. Because you're still scheming, you're still holding on to. So as religion responds to grace, grace has a response to religion, doesn't it? Paul teaches that no one is saved or could even have dreamed up any actual part in planning what God has planned for man and their salvation. What does verse 8 say? But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. It's a tremendous statement here. As Paul quotes Moses from the book of Deuteronomy, just to be able to say, you know what? Even in the ancient of days, even in the time of Moses, this understanding you had, it was near you. You even spoke it. You even understood it in your heart. Now he's getting to the, 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 the part of the religious crew that was a little bit more stiff-necked. 
There's a lot of people that have not rejected and stubbornly said no to Jesus Christ, but there's some who have. In other words, he's basically saying here, if I can put it in our terms, you've rejected the simplicity that you've known in Jesus Christ for a long time. It was in your ear, you spoke about it. So that means you understood it in your heart, but you never submitted your heart to the simplicity of salvation and one alone. And that's sobering, isn't it? You knew, but you said no. Cross-reference here next to this verse 8, John 3. Because this is what Jesus chided Nicodemus with in John 3. When Nicodemus says, what does it mean to be born again? And Jesus says, what? Nicodemus, I think you kind of know. You should know already. As a matter of fact, Nicodemus, I think you do know. They knew. Remember, what these devoted people knew. They were sincere. They knew. Some reject passively, and now we're finding out that many reject very, very actively. Okay? Some may misinterpret and misunderstand. Some have interpreted wisely and don't misunderstand, and they still reject, and that's, that's tough. That's tough for them. But what is he saying here as we wrap up? Something else that they certainly would have understood. Verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God is raised from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. He's basically summarizing here for the Roman believer who's sitting here listening to grace's response to religion and how religion responds to grace. And he's basically saying, look, this is how it works. This is what it means to be born again. If you're willing to confess, it's the same word here in 1 John 1, 9. It means to rename. If you're willing to rename with your mouth that which you've heard in your head and you've intellectually understood, right? You've emotionally understood, and now you're willing to submit your heart to Jesus as what? There it is. Simple faith decision. This is the righteousness by faith. Submitting to Jesus as Lord alone in your life. Not religion, not person in religion, not family in religion. The Lord alone. If you're willing to rename Lord alone through a simple faith. That God has raised him from the dead. Then we know you're saved. Then we know you're saved. A lot of people argue that this is a great text for those who maybe here this morning that have never been saved and, and for you to realize this, but what Paul is saying to the Roman believer is, this is how those of you in the auditorium already know you're saved. If you're willing to rename that which you've already believed, see, this is more creedal for them than it is initial understanding. If you're just willing to rename that which you've already believed and claimed as Christ is your Lord and you believe that God raised him from the dead, listen, Listen, you're saved. Don't forget the simplicity of that. So as grace responds to religion, what's he saying here? Keep it that simple. Keep it that simple. And he says it all began in the heart, didn't it? But someone that's truly transformed in the soul, the nefesh, the heart, will confess, will rename 
that which they've already experienced in salvation. And whoever believes in him, that person's never going to be appointed. And now he's transitioning into chapter 10, verses 14 and beyond. The rest of the chapter, we'll get to the next time we're together. And what's he saying? He's saying, okay, to my religious friend, and what is a tendency of religious people? And I'll close with this. The tendency of religious people is this. And, 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 and they, and they, and they got to battle with this. All religious people have to battle with this. Religious, any religion believes that they've got a corner on truth, don't they? Whether it be a cult or a religion, every church, every religion believes they've got a corner on truth. The Jewish people, they were, they were just like anyone else, right? They believed they had a corner on truth. You join us. It's us four and no more. You get us. We'll accept you. Then you'll be right. So we're speaking for gener- religion in general. But Paul is about to help grace address religiosity. You know what? No one's got a corner on truth. No religion, no cult, no church has a special corner on truth because the living truth, Jesus Christ, has been manifested, remember Romans chapter 1, to all men. Truth has been manifested to all men. All men have been made aware of their obligation to him who is truth. So if you want to know where the corner on truth is, it's not here at Grace Church of Menor. It's in Jesus Christ Amen. and him alone. Amen. Look to him. He can say. And so when he goes on here uh, in the next couple verses, look at what, look what he says. For the, verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for who? All who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, he quotes Joel chapter 2 and verse 32 there, we'll study that next time, will be saved. Very interesting context, why he chooses the prophet Joel there as Joel talks about the day of the Lord. All right, he's basically saying, as he talks about, I believe, the tribulation period there, Joel says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It doesn't matter who in that time period, Jew or Gentile, calls upon the name of the Lord in the time of great destruction. The Lord will still have mercy on that soul, regardless who they are. He just draws that context there and puts it here and says, it's still good now, even for all men, even though we're not in the great tribulation yet. All men can be saved. No one's got a corner on truth. So that's when people say, oh, so you're telling me this gospel, and, and, and I, I thank you for it, but man, does that, it just makes it sound like Grace Church is all that. Grace Church, it sounds like you guys just are all that. You're just, you're just the perfect church. I was like, listen, no, no church is perfect. We're not all that. I'm just saying there is one person who is, though. Amen. Right? Just one person, and that's Jesus. Amen. And you've got to do something with him. You've got to do something with him. Let's pray together.